0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: Trinity Long Room Hub, um, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. It's lovely to see so many people here for this lovely fellow in focus with, um, with Alex, who has been with us now for <coughs> it seems like a couple of months, but maybe it's not that long, Alex. How long have you been? Two? Has long? it gone already? It's, I, I know you're leaving on. on on Wednesday. Um, But just to introduce myself, my name is Jane Orlmire, I'm the Director of The Hub and our fellows are a hugely important part of our community Uh, and uh, Alex has been with us for two months and he's been hugely productive and we're going to hear a little bit about his work in, in a moment. Um, we're very grateful to our colleagues in the Manuscript and Print Cultures theme who nominated um, Alex for this fellowship, and we're very grateful to our colleagues in the Library, and especially to Laura, who's been such phenomenal hosts um, uh, uh, for Alex during his fellowship. And actually, Laura is going to be our interlocutor today. Um, so, aside from welcoming you all, I also just need to point out that Francesca is filming, um, (laughs) but she's not actually filming anyone in particular. But obviously, if you have any objections, it's really important that you tell her to make sure that, you know... It's really just to film Alex. I I was (laughs) going to say, she's really interested in Alex, not the rest of us. Um, And the reason we're doing this is um, uh, we prepared a little uh, video uh, on um, Alex's visiting research fellowship and his work on the Fago collection which we then hope to post online alongside the other Fagel uh, videos that we made probably about two years ago now uh, in an effort to bring the attention of the world to the amazing Faggle collection. And it's actually had tremendous traction. So these little videos obviously are really important in drawing attention, not just to the Faggle, but of course to Trinity more generally. So without further ado, if you could join me in uh, welcoming uh, Laura and uh, Alex uh, over to you guys. Is it on? Is on? Now going on.
0: Yeah. yeah, great. So, Alex, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you this afternoon. Uh, we've got about 40 minutes, I think, to have a conversation, and we'll leave some time at the end for any questions from the audience. So, I thought we would open with a little conversation about you and about your profession. So, maybe you could tell us um, how you describe your professional self. What it is that you do, and share with us why it excites you.
2: I, I usually tell people that uh, I'm a book historian and a bibliographer. Um, and then the question is, what, what is that really? Uh, uh, and that depends on the people that you're talking about, uh, talking with, uh, if they understand what a book historian does and what what he tries to uh, to research. Um, the thing is that uh, the most productive work that you can do is uh, uh, catalogue records. Try to create data, and on the basis of that data, you can uh, uh, start your research. And uh, I try to do both, and uh, both work together. Uh, I think we talk a little bit about that later, uh, because you asked about me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I worked in I in, worked in libraries. In Netherlands and research institutions for the past 10 years, in the Netherlands and Sweden. Uh, Most of the time I spent at the National Library of the Netherlands, the KB. Uh, I've been involved in cataloguing, in uh, book history, in uh, uh, all kinds of projects in the library.
0: We had a coffee this morning where you were explaining to us the unusual situation in the Netherlands where a lot of uh, people under the age of 40 are actually self-employed. So, technically, you're a self-employed book historian, which sounds like a rare treat, treat yeah. from this side of the table, but I suppose poses challenges as well in terms of ensuring longevity of your uh, professional career and your development.
2: I, I think that's, uh, that's exactly the reason why I'm hesitating a little bit, uh, because it's so difficult to explain. In most countries, you, uh, you sign up for a job, and you work at an institution, and they pay your salary. Um, it used to be like that in the Netherlands for a long time, uh, but in the past 20 years, a lot of people uh, actually are self employed, uh, meaning that you're hired for a project. And um, that creates all kinds of difficulties when you're talking about who's your employer. Because at the moment, I'm involved in a project uh, between the National Library of Netherlands and the University of Uppsala in Sweden. I'm working as a curator at uh, the House of Parliament uh, in The Hague. Uh, And I'm here now in uh, Dublin as a visiting fellow. So that's three different projects that I'm working on.
0: Three different employers, three different priorities. That's very interesting, thank you. So um, you're here obviously working with the Fagel collection. And I thought that you might give your overview, outline uh, what this collection is, describe the Fagel collection Uh, of Trinity College Dublin.
2: The the Fagel collection is an 18th century private library and it was brought together by uh, five generations of uh, uh, griffiers of the, the state general, so a high administrative officer in the, in the Dutch Republic. Um, and it's, it's, as far as I know, the largest private library from the Dutch Republic that is still uh, uh, around, because at the time, Uh, uh, A lot of people were uh, collecting books and we know of other libraries of tens of thousands of books. Um, But usually when uh, when somebody died the uh, entire library was brought up for auction and uh, dispersed again. Uh, So we know about all those libraries from library catalogs, from uh, auction catalogs, and you can reconstruct those libraries, but to have a library in its entirety still in one place. Uh, that's quite special. And it's even more special that it's not in the Netherlands, uh, because uh, we needs some explanation, uh, that you find the largest uh, uh, 18th-century private library from the Dutch Republic in Dublin. Um, the reason is that uh, in, in 1795, uh, the French troops came into the Dutch Republic, and the Dutch Republic basically came to an end. Um, that also meant that the administrative career of the Vagel, uh, at that time Hendrik Vagel the Younger, uh, uh, came to an end. He was in London at the time. Uh, his contract ended. Uh, basically. basically.
0: <laughs> lots about like employment in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: he, uh, so he became a self-employed. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, he had all kinds of uh, financial problems and uh, he came up with the idea to sell his library. An auction catalogue was compiled in, in London uh, in 1802, but the sale never took place. The library uh, was sold uh, on block to uh, the government.
0: And actually, one of the archivists who works in uh, the library was telling me recently she used to work at Christie's Auction House, and the catalogue they have there has the uh, names of people who corresponded about the collection contained within it. So people who showed interest and then ultimately it came to Trinity and completely transformed the collections of the Library of Trinity, which is phenomenal. Um, So with the Fargo Collection, you have a specific remit under your Visiting Research Fellowship and we've managed to exploit some of that remit to our own gains as well and learn a bit more through the work that you've been doing, but maybe you can tell us exactly what you've been working on with the Fargo Collection.
2: the, the, the reason that there is so much uh, interest in the Faber collection from the Netherlands is that we expect that there are quite a few uh, unique items in the collection. Uh, the National Library uh, is of course mainly interested in finding those unique items, adding them to the National Bibliography and ultimately also digitizing them, so they become available uh, for researchers also in the Netherlands, but basically for anyone in the world interested. Um, So uh, there have been other researchers, uh, obviously before me, who came to uh, research the Fago collection. Um, But they never created any any data. They all did their own research, uh, interesting as it may be. Um, uh, It's not available for other researchers at at the moment. So the National Library asked me, can you uh, look into the collection and catalogue a part of it? And find out how much of the collection is actually unique. Uh, or if there are any other things uh, that, that are really specific for the Bible collection that you can think about. So I started cataloguing for the short title Catalog Netherlands, which is the national bibliography of the Netherlands till 1800. Uh, and I managed to and 2,500 titles to the catalog in uh, the past two months and about 10% isn't found in any other library uh, across the world that we've been to.
0: That's really extraordinary figures, that is great data to be able to share the impact over two months of you working here. And uh, I wonder if you could actually tell us um, some of the other interesting things you've found when working with the Fagel collection. So we talk about it as this unique private library from the 18th century. But what other stories have you found when working through those individual records uh, and the prevalence of some of the collection as well?
2: It's, it's, um, it's interesting when you talk about it. This is the part that I really want to start talking about straight from the beginning of this conversation. Um, this is the meat, <laughs> thing. Um, we, we, We're talking about Fabo Collection as a Dutch private library. But uh, the question is, is that really the case? Uh, What kind of a library are we actually talking about? Because the Fagels were uh, administrative officers in in the Dutch Republic. Um, They had a lot lot of involvement in Dutch politics. And there are really large parts of the collection that you wouldn't find in a private library. Mm -hmm. Uh, They tell you all kinds of things about uh, Dutch administration in the 18th century. Uh, much more than uh, it tells you about a private book collection. Mm. Um, so I think one of the interesting things that I found is that uh, it's actually not one collection, it's a combination of collections. It's a combination of the different Fagos, uh, because we're, we're talking about Fargo but there are five, and obviously uh, the largest part of the collection uh, can be connected The last two uh, fables, but there are also uh, parts of the collection that uh, certainly were around already uh, um, around 1700 in the collection, so they should be connected to the first uh, fables. Um, One of the interesting and actually well-known stories about uh, findings in the fable collection is the the travel journal of. a governor of uh, the Cape Colony in the late 17th century. His name was Simon van der Stel. And he wrote an uh, an account on travels in uh, southern Africa and the natural history that was found there. We we know that that the journal existed um, because it was used in early 18th century in in, in other books. but when they wanted to make an edition in the early 20th century, they couldn't find a journal. Uh, so they made the edition based on all the sources that they could find. And then in the early 1920s, there was somebody at Trinity who said, well, it's in the Fargo version. <laughs> we so, have it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it turned out to be here. Um, and um, um, uh, they, they used that for a later edition to produce full text. But the question is, why did uh, uh, such an important journal that was supposed to be in, um, in the Dutch archives somewhere, in the, in the archives of the East India Company, why did it end up in the Fago collection? And I had pleasure to look into uh, several parts of the collection now, and especially the parts on horticulture, on uh, the, the gardening that several Fago's did, uh, proved to be a link to uh, the, the journal of Simon van der Stel, because in the correspondence with van der Stel and Fagel, it turned out that uh, uh, the, the first Fagel uh, that we're talking about, Gaspar uh, Fagel, was mainly interested in botanical uh, specimens that he wanted to get over from South Africa that he could plant in his garden. There's a whole story behind that, but you can connect that to all different elements in the Faber collection. Uh, all the beautiful books uh, about botany that are in the collection, all bound in, in really luxurious red morocco, uh, uh, gold tooled uh, to the boards, it's it, it, uh, the, the, the most exquisite kind of coloring. Uh, they can all be connected to that same circle uh, of horticulture, gardening. Uh, interest in exotic plants and um, it's interesting when you think about it that you can all connect that to that one journal that was apparently missing but turned up in the fiber collection already in the 1920s Uh, but it's just a beautiful example that shows you how one book that might turn up can explain a whole history around it and I think that's one of the uh, most important things that we're doing now. Uh, you're cataloguing books, uh, you're creating data, uh, but in that process, um, you're also creating, uh, uh, recreating the network of the late 17th to early 18th century.
0: It's a fascinating example as well, because she talks about the collection representing a kind of national or political history, but actually those personal histories are interweaved, and it is only when you start to delve into the detail of our particular item within the collection, that you understand those connections, which is really quite extraordinary. It,
2: it, 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 really, it really is, and, and I will give one example of the political side as well. Okay. Um, and I, I haven't completely figured it out yet, but uh, at a certain point I noticed that all the books by a friend's Eugenote scholar, uh, called Bosnage, um, had a personal annotation in, uh, in the books. Um, like a dedication to the Griffier, uh, you new uh, great Mr. Fagel, uh, please accept my book. So I decided to ask for all the books uh, from that same author, and it turns out all of them have a manuscript annotation. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know anything about uh, about that French Huguenot scholar, but it turned out that um, um, he initially settled in Rotterdam and afterwards. He was uh, given a position in a political center in the Hague and he turned out to be a really interesting connection between uh, uh, some of the uh, main political characters in the early 18th century and the French Huguenot community. Yeah. Um, again, there's a whole history connected to it, but you wouldn't even think about researching that until you find the connection in the physical books.
0: Yeah. So, the individual titles within the Fagel collection can be deceptive in terms of what they really mean. Absolutely. So, yes. I, know, I know we have this um, personal view about unique items or soul survivors and what that really means. But in some instances, within the Fagel collection, they are soul survivors in their historic record of something that had happened or a connection or a relationship.
2: Yeah, of course, if you're talking about uh, uh, soul survivors in a bibliographical uh, mm-hmm. way, Of course, it's interesting, especially if you're dealing with a text that is not known in in any other edition, Um, but I I found one uh, from, I think, 1770, uh, a true soul survivor. No (coughs) other copy, I I really tried hard, no other copy around the world. Um, But I did find a review from uh, uh, from 1770, where the book was uh, described as rather pointless and a waste of paper.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of makes sense that it a sole survivor, all the other ones are simply thrown away. Um,
2: And, of of course, it's interesting that you have that one copy that is surviving, uh, because then you can use it in research, and uh, maybe it is more interesting to us now than it was in 1770. Um, But that's that's a sole survivor in a bibliographical way. But uh, uh like you say um, when you're dealing with uh, with a collection uh, such as this one every book in itself is in fact a sole survivor uh, it may be because of the binding because of the personal history annotations uh, other traces of use
0: coloring sometimes is Coloring. yeah exactly yeah.
2: Um, so it's it's uh, yeah they, they, you can
0: Talk about soul survivors in more than one way. Yeah. I've oh, just
1: changed your that's good. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, so yeah, our, our ambition at Trinity has been around making sure that every item within this collection is described, and then we want to virtually reunite this collection with other collections around the world. So I, I wondered if you could just um, describe some of the connections you're aware of, where parts of the Fagel collection intersect directly with other collections you know about, either in the Netherlands or elsewhere and why it's important that in the longer term we fulfil this project to make sure that it's completely discoverable.
2: I, I think for any cole- uh, collection it's important uh, that you not only consider it uh, within the context of the library today, but also in the historical context where it comes from. Um, in the case of the Fago collection, um, it's obvious that there are all kinds of connections with the Netherlands, and especially with the role uh, in uh, administration that the Fago's had. You can see that there's a lot of overlap between the collections here in Trinity, uh, the National Library of the Netherlands, uh, the National Archives, and uh, the National Parliament in The uh, in Hague. Um, and it's only if you consider these, these collections together that you uh, can understand uh, what, what, what they really mean. Uh, to, to, to give an example, I found uh, several bindings that I instantly recognized from the other libraries in the Netherlands. And uh, it's not a coincidence. If um, you can say that every binding is unique because it was handmade, Um, but if you see certain patterns, if the the same rolls or stamps Mm -hmm. have been used, then you know that they might come from the same binary. And maybe uh, uh, they can be connected to a certain um, a certain event uh, in fact, I, I found um, is it time for a little bit of Dutch history?
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> a brief Dutch history. Uh, I, I know one
2: of the, uh, one of the items that, uh, that is usually shown here at, at Trinity when Dutch visitors go, uh, come over is the so called plakat van Verlatingen. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the Declaration of Independence uh, from uh, from the Netherlands, 1581. Uh, But that all started a couple of years before in in 1577 with, uh, no, uh, (laughs) 1579, uh, the uh, Union of Utrecht, uh, which basically was the, 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 the treaty that united the modern provinces. So that's 1579. In 1779, so 200 years later, um, they wanted to, uh, uh, to have a little celebration about that, uh, and of course they only wanted to do that because it um, um, it, it how do you say that it, it helped to legitimize Dutch political rule at the moment okay. because they could say uh, look at this we're, we're based on a treaty of 200 years ago. And that's the true Dutch constitution. So in 1779, they reproduced the original treaty from 1579, using the original type from the 16th century. They uh, recreated all signatures uh, in engraving. uh, And they didn't sell the copies. They handed them out to important political people. so you can understand the falco's also received one copy. And if you see the copy uh, in the Fago collection today, it uh, is bound in red Morocco with uh, the, the gilded stamp of the Dutch Republic uh, to the boards. And that's actually, actually exactly the same as a lot of copies that I've traced in the Netherlands. Because some 50 copies uh, are still around right. uh, of this book, and all of them are luxuriously bound. And if you only see the first copy, you can you can basically say uh, say yeah, it's it's beautiful, it's a beautiful copy, it's beautifully bound, fine binding. Uh, let's treasure this. But if you see all 50 copies, so connected to other libraries. Uh, then you understand the history of this copy, Mm. the the history of the edition, because then you know that it was part of a political project to hand those copies out to important people uh, in the Dutch Republic. And to come back to your question, I I think this is the reason uh, why you need uh, not only to, to catalog a library like this, to make it available to research, but certainly to connect it to, to other libraries, to um, uh, big data platforms, uh, be it of uh, Searle, uh, of um, uh, ViDef, uh, you, well, you name it, a- anything that you can connect your data to, please do.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point to take away from today, is that the technologies we apply as we go forward in the next couple of months have to be interoperable with the other databases that already exist so yeah that's great so um we spoke earlier about this being a dutch library but some of the languages represented in the books of the latin french german greek italian spanish hebrew arabic russian hungarian Uh, and then there are sheet maps which cover all corners of the world so really we wonder if this is a collection of european significance uh, at this particular crossroads in the um, uk european context whether it has a potential resonance of the uh, global nature of the world throughout centuries.
2: It's it's really interesting that uh, uh, people always start talking about the languages in the collection. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, but apparently uh, it's it's fascinating for people to think that there are books in so many different languages in one collection, especially if it's a private collection. Mm The the, the Dutch Republic in the 17th century and for some part also in the 18th century was known as the bookshop of the world Mm -hmm. and uh, our friends uh, from St. Andrews uh, have recently published uh, another book about that and I think they are completely right in that sense that uh, the Dutch Republic uh, produced books for all corners of of Europe. Even if this is uh, a private collection of the Fagos uh, it makes sense that you find all those books uh, uh, that maybe were destined for different corners of the the continent uh, in this one collection. And in that case, uh, from that viewpoint, point, uh, it is a, a European collection. And that's half of the story. The other half is that Uh, To the fathers it didn't really matter Mm. whether they had a book that was printed in The Hague or in Paris or in Rome. Uh, They simply wanted the right books with the information that uh, that, that mattered to them. And because they were such central figures in the Dutch Republic, they had access to information from all corners of Europe. so that's why you might find, uh, uh, besides all the Dutch books that I'm mostly talking about, yeah. uh, you, you find uh, all the uh, all the great books from other parts of Europe as well. And actually, there is some evidence that some of it came uh, from uh, the Spanish ambassador, for example. The Spanish ambassador yeah. in the Hague uh, could deliver books to the Fagos that they would need uh, from Spain. Uh,
0: So the gifting of collections or gifting of books was part of the political relationship as well and um, the understanding of the wider world.
2: Absolutely. And and you need the context for that. You you probably need the the National Archives in the Hague for that. Mm. Uh, Because the information that the Fagos wrote in their books is very limited. Right. Uh, There's not a lot of context information in the books, Uh, but maybe if you connect it to the information from the archives, you. can get a, a, a large part of the history uh, right,
0: of how they use that collection, that's fascinating. So if you could pick out just one item that you've worked with from the Fago collection of the two and a half thousand that you've managed to list, uh, that you would describe to some of your friends when you go back home because of its significance, what would it be?
2: If, if, I, if I would have to describe one item to my friends then I would certainly pick the uh, uh, a well-known book about tulips. Uh, it's actually it, it's uh, in the manuscript department, mm. but there is some printed material connected to it. Um, it's it's a, a book of tulips. Uh, you probably know the story. In seven, uh, 1637, uh, there was tulip mania in, in the Dutch Republic. Um, people bought uh, uh, flower bulbs for the price of, a, of an entire house. Mm-hmm. Um, and of, of course it's, it's the, the first true economic madness in the, in the world. Uh, the whole thing collapsed and um, uh, a, a lot of people went bankrupt because of that. That was in uh, 1637. Uh, we talked about horticulture before. Uh, the Fables really were interested in, in flowers still in the early 18th century. Yeah. And, um, The book that I'm talking about is actually an auction catalog, hand-made, painted uh, from 1637. Um, And you can see that the the prices of some of the flowers were 3,000 guilders. That's Uh, that's about 10 times what a skilled uh, craftsman would earn in a year. Um, But even in the the early 18th century, prices are still pretty high. You, you pay more for uh, for flowers than you would pay for those beautiful books that I'm talking about.
0: That's
2: incredible. And <laughs> the, the interesting <coughs> part with this uh, with this material is that uh, there are some printed um, auction, well, not, not so much catalogs, but auction broadsheets uh, from the early 18th century where you can actually see that um, all the big names in the Dutch Republic in those days went to the auction uh, to buy flower girls. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting story. It's, so, uh, it, it's something that we uh, can all connect to. Uh, and it's also interesting because uh, those were sheets rarely survive. And you find several here in collection uh, that you won't find anywhere else. So it's a story that uh, uh, makes it understandable to my friends back home. Uh, but
0: it's still interesting from a historical perspective. And just as a um, side note, that catalogue is actually on our digital collections platform, so you can have a look yeah. at it anytime you want as well. It's fascinating to see. So um, I just really wanted to close our session talking more about your experience as a visiting research fellow here in the Hub. and We had a really nice chat this morning about your weekly commons with other VRFs which I thought was lovely to actually understand how you're getting to know one, each, one another as well. Um, and maybe you could talk about your experience of just being at Trinity College Dublin. And Jane, I have to ask this question, don't I? Alex, will you come back?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, well, well, to, to start with, uh, with the last question, uh, I, would, I would love to come back. And uh, in fact, I have to come back because you just uh, said that 2,500 uh, uh, titles are now Catalogued. And they are available for research straight away. If you go to the Dutch National Bibliography, you can find them. And I hope that uh, pretty soon they will also be available through your uh, own catalogue. Um, but there are still some 25,000 titles <laughs> in the catalog. And uh, I would love to come back for that. Um, I think it's, it's been really, really interesting to uh, be able to uh, uh, to do this research here at Trinity, to be uh, here uh, at the Hub and have a chance to talk to so many other scientists uh, with slightly different interests. And I think we, t- we talked about this a little bit, that um, uh, you sometimes feel when you're working in a library or when you're working uh, in a department of book history that you're only talking to other librarians and other book historians. And it can be really productive to uh, to speak to, uh, to to other scientists and there may be social scientists but even if you're talking uh, to, to people in the natural sciences uh, you, you might learn a lot uh, a lot of different things and I think the the, the hub here is, is a a wonderful environment to, to get that started and uh, one of the best things are the weekly coffee mornings uh, every Wednesday um, where two people present uh, um, their own research, uh, and it gives you uh, 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 it gives you a chance to, to, to get to know other people. And uh, well, I I really love that about Dublin in general. Uh, I think it's great how you guys uh, treat your literary heroes in the city. <laughs> um, you, you, just, you, you should look in the Netherlands uh, what kind of desolate alleys uh, we, we, we <laughs> use to, uh, uh, as, a, as a street name for our literary heroes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the greatest author of, uh, uh, from the Netherlands in the 20th century uh, is uh, Bay of Hermans. And if you go to Amsterdam and look for the Bay of Hermans street, uh, you'll be shocked. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's really uh, one of the things that I enjoyed here in Dublin, no matter where you go, no matter where you look, there's always some kind of uh, reference to uh, the literary history of the
0: city. That's wonderful. You're not talking about the talking statues tour, you're talking about <laughs> other cultural uh, signifiers. So, um, I could talk to you all day Alex, I, I really could, because your uh, in-depth knowledge of the collection, having only been here for two months, and its wider context is just phenomenal. We've we've gotten so much out of it. Um, so to In a conversation, me. I'm so grateful. So many people came along this afternoon as well. But if you'd like to join me in thanking Alex for uh, this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you.